Hi, it's David Freudberg from Humankind on Public Radio. Stay tuned. Our podcast begins in a moment after this brief word. Hey, everybody. I'm Nick Layton. And I'm Leah Bonima. And we're the hosts of Were You Raised by Wolves? Each week, we try to make the world a kinder, nicer place. Well, that's the idea, at least. I mean, we try. Have you ever wondered what to do if you're ghosted? Or what to do when a friend asks you to borrow money? Or the proper way to eat Cheetos? You know, the big questions. So please find Were You Raised by Wolves wherever you listen. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. It's available to one on the subway. It's available to one standing in the checkout line at the supermarket. The sense of living always with the awareness of that silent guidance, that silent presence makes all the difference in life. The rich tradition of American Quakerism, whose practice of group silence can be more powerful than words. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. From its beginnings in the mid-1600s, Quakers have responded to two deep impulses, an outer responsibility to serve other human beings and a private need to serve God. That was the vision of young George Fox, a shoemaker's apprentice in the English county of Leicestershire. He rejected the superiority of clergy in his day, who he thought were hypocritical, and he declared that the common folk were equal that spiritual wisdom was directly available to everyone through their inner light. A contemporary of Fox, who was 20 years younger, William Penn, joined the Quaker movement and offered a vision of transcendence. The humble, meek, merciful, just, pious, and devout souls are everywhere of one religion. And when death has taken off the mask, they will know one another, though the diverse liveries they wear here makes them strangers. This world is a form. Our bodies are forms. And no visible acts of devotion can be without forms. But yet the less form in religion the better, since God is a spirit. For the more mental our worship, the more adequate to the nature of God. The more silent, the more suitable to the language of a spirit. Group silent meditation, sometimes called the meeting for worship, is still practiced by many Quakers today. Formerly, they're the Society of Friends. William Penn brought his vision to America when the King of England, who owed Penn's father a large debt, granted him a massive tract of land in the colonies. It became known as Pennsylvania, or Penn's Woods, and established the green country town of Philadelphia, where the United States was eventually born. The late Quaker historian Edwin Bronner of Haverford College. William Penn did hope to create a a government and a society which he said would be an example to the nations, which he hoped would be an example for posterity, 
and he did regard this province as as a holy experiment uh, under under divine guidance. But a gift from the King of England changed little about the conditions on the ground in this territory where a population of Native Americans had been living for centuries. So Penn prepared to depart England and come to America to talk. He wrote ahead of time to what he regarded as the king of the Lenny Lenapes or Delawares, explained that uh, he felt a little uneasy about the fact the king had given him this land, and he hoped it would be possible that uh, he and his followers could come and share the land with them. And uh, he promised to treat the Indians uh, as his brothers. Uh, he promised that he would uh, deal justly with them in all ways. William Penn's letter to the Indians is one of the most extraordinary documents in colonial history. My friends, there is one great God and power that hath made the world and all things therein, to whom you and I and all people owe their being and well-being, and to whom you and I must one day give an account for all that we do in the world. This great God hath written his law in our hearts by which we are taught and commanded to love and help and do good to one another and not do harm and mischief to one another. Now this great God hath been pleased to make me concerned in your parts of the world and the king of the country where I live hath given unto me a great province. But I desire to enjoy it with your love and consent that we may always live together as neighbors and friends. Else what would the great God say to us, who hath made us not to devour and destroy one another, but to live soberly and kindly together in the world? Now I would have you well observe that I am very sensible of the unkindness and injustice that have been too much exercised toward you by the people of these parts of the world who sought themselves and to make great advantages by you rather than be examples of justice and goodness unto you, which I hear hath been a matter of trouble to you, and caused great grudgings and animosities, sometimes to the shedding of blood, which hath made the great God angry. But I am not such a man as is well known in my own country. I have great love and regard toward you, and I desire to win and gain your love and friendship by a kind, just, and peaceable life. And the people I send are of the same mind, and shall in all things behave themselves accordingly. And if in anything any shall offend you or your people, you shall have a full and speedy satisfaction for the same by an equal number of just men on both sides, that by no means you may have just occasion of being offended against them. I shall shortly come to you myself, at which time we may more largely and freely confer and discourse of these matters. I am your loving friend, William Penn. Penn's humanitarian instincts extended beyond his considerate treatment of Native Americans. Edwin Bronner. He made provision in this new colony for uh, the treatment of offenders in a far different way from what was customary in those days. In the first place, uh, 
at a time when there were literally dozens of capital crimes, a person could be executed for petty theft. He provided for the death penalty only for uh, high treason and deliberate first-degree murder. And then uh, he provided for the training of those who were to be jailed instead of executed, the kind of vocational training which would prepare them for a useful life when they were eventually released. He was made the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, but he made it very clear that he wasn't going to have any army. He wasn't going to have any military force. Uh, he did, on the other hand, provide for peace officers, a sheriff, and constables to maintain the peace. Thus surfaced a cornerstone of Quaker thought. As George Fox had earlier declared, we utterly deny all outward wars and strife and fightings with outward weapons for any end or under any pretense whatsoever. This is our testimony to the whole world. But for all of us, there are inner battles. George Lakey, a visiting professor at Swarthmore College, was attracted to Quakerism as a young college student, but was initially rather reluctant to renounce violence. I spent a year of serious internal conflict over this because my family had been pro-military. It was Cold War time. The evil empire was out to get us and so on. And uh, the, at the, by the end of the year, I was clear that I was a conscientious objector. That is, that I'd become a pacifist. So that was a pretty complete turnaround. It was a, it was a U-turn. It was a U-turn, yeah. I became desperate toward the end I, for arguments against pacifism. I felt I was on a slippery slope. My folks wouldn't understand my family, my home church, and the the assumptions that I'd grown up with. I was a male. I'd, I'd seen my share of John Wayne movies. I knew what a man, a real man, is supposed to be doing in situations of conflict. I bought the paradigm, the cultural paradigm that says that when push comes to shove, uh, we should be ready to use violence, and we should be skillful at it, and we should prevail using it. The more I investigated the question in a really serious way, the way I opened my mind to really considering both sides of the pacifist question, the more credible the pacifist position became, not only from a moral point of view, but also from a pragmatic point of view. Because war, in fact, has a terrible track record. <laughs> Pretty much every war I know about, at least one side loses, and very often both sides lose. So war is hardly, you know, as a technology for confronting conflict, war actually has a miserable track record and gets more miserable all the time. When you say both <laughs> sides frequently lose yes. in war, mm. in what way? Because we're conditioned to kind of believe, well, there's a winner and there's a loser, and too bad for the loser because the winner has prevailed. Yes, well, a, an example would be the Vietnam War, in which the U.S. formally lost. That is, we were really sent packing. So the mightiest empire in the world did lose to a small peasant people that threw us out of their country. However, they lost too. They lost tremendous ground economically. Uh, the the uh, the U.S. dropped more bombs on Vietnam than it had on 
all uh, during World War II. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal destruction. And I was there, and I saw some of that going on. And so uh, I was there on a peace mission, not as a soldier. But anyway, it took years and years and years. And think of the trauma for the Vietnamese families that were losing, what, what did we kill, over a million people? Tremendous trauma. So even though they won in a formal way and that they beat the U.S., which must have been a tremendous high because who can take on the U.S. and prevail militarily? On the other hand, they also lost. Uh, and, and, and that's just one example of many. So you said on practical grounds, war frequently doesn't work, if, if ever. And also on moral grounds, what, what is the moral basis for the pacifist tradition? Well, I like to use Quaker language, a principle, I would say a fairly basic principle of Quakerism is that there's that of God in every person. That is that every one of us has a spark of the divine within us, which means that there's, there's all this flesh that we see, but there's God stuff walking around all the time. All of life is sacred. Um, and it's actually mostly because of our, our loss of that awareness that we've been living in a way that's out of balance. Marcel Martin attends Swarthmore Friends Meeting in suburban Philadelphia. So we need to regain that balance by returning to an awareness of, of the sacredness of everything and of the presence of God within each person, within ourselves. And as we learn to do that, we'll see more and more clearly how we need to change what's not working, what's not right, how God is calling us to live in a different way. And fundamental to that way for Quakers is the principle of equality. Historian Howard Brinton notes that even before pacifism was fully embraced by the Friends, Quaker soldiers were discharged from military service because they refused to treat their officers as superiors. Equality is rooted in the belief that all human beings are on level ground because we contain a ray of the divine, our higher self, even if our own actions may sometimes fall short of that potential. Brinton writes, The Quaker doctrine of equality does not mean equality of ability, economic resources, or social status. It means equality of respect and the resulting absence of all words and behavior based on class, racial, or social distinctions. No persons enjoy special privilege. Considering Voices of Quakerism, a rich American tradition dating to before the United States was founded. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, the Society of Friends, and to obtain or download an audio copy, please visit humanmedia.org.
As practiced in early America, the meeting for worship where a typical Quaker congregation comes together on Sundays is unlike mainstream religious services. For one thing, in many Quaker meetings to this day, there's no clergy present. No one is designated to preach or to lead the service. Instead, a visitor finds the group seated together in silence. Many attenders close their eyes in quiet meditation. Quakers are actively listening for some signal of divine guidance within. Sometimes they rise to share that experience aloud. We'll hear from a variety of voices, some recorded by the Quaker Speaks Project, which you can learn about at our website, others drawn from our prior documentary about the Friends. The Quaker is someone who's seeking to be faithful to the deepest truth that we can encounter, to be, to be guided by that truth, by the, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, by the, by the presence of God in our lives, and by the understanding that that's a real experience that we can encounter. A Quaker is someone who is willing to be still. Enter a silence and to actually be penetrated by that silence. For me, one of the things that it means to be Quaker is to be together in a community of people um, who gather and listen together. And you, um, you know, we can, we can have spiritual practice outside of meeting, uh, outside of worshiping, but there's something about coming together and listening together to God as a community that is full of life and full of conflict and challenge. And to me, that's what makes Quakerism beautiful. The understanding that God is there in the worship and is with us. There is a way of trusting the innocence of that power so that one is not afraid of it, not afraid of the power but is willing to walk intimately into that power and be informed by it. Informed, reformed, transformed. And in the transformation of being touched by God, behaviors change, something different happens. So by definition, your communication changes because you know if we're all then therefore that of God we're therefore all equal and so by definition our relationships with each other must change and will be different. I think a Quaker is someone who is part of this living stream this sense of being a people who've been on this journey for more than 350 years traveling together as a community, supporting one another with these traditions and these practices that we have, we have found. We, have, we didn't create them, we discovered them that, that help people along that journey of faithfulness um, as we help each other to be set free and to grow more fully alive. Um, and to me, that's the, that's the way we're inviting people into. Forbes Emerson was a Massachusetts Quaker in the early 1900s. She wrote about her profound experience of quiet, meditative prayer. 
For three hundred years, Quakers have based the most sacred act of religious observance, the meeting for worship, upon this most fragile, most sensitive, most easily shattered thing, silence. In the gathered meeting, it often happens that individual worship merges into a greater whole, and in the stillness comes an upsurge of spiritual power and a clearness of vision, which is far beyond what each one can attain alone. Silence is one of the profound bases upon which life is founded. We know that it is never very far away, yet man dreads it. He shrinks from it, just as he does from solitude. At the present time, he has almost succeeded in wiping it out of his life. An intense need arises to come in touch with inner reserves, which in all times have been man's stay. We know that silence is not in itself the inner light, but... We believe that it is the setting, the favorable atmosphere, for that of which we are in search. Silence. It forces you to face yourself. You can't get away from your own thoughts, whatever's going through your own mind. You can try to, to quiet your mind and to allow the, the spirit to enter it and to fill it, but that, that is difficult at times, especially if you're full of a great deal of activity, and most of us these days are. We, we rush to meeting or we drive a car. We don't pick violets on the way. <laughs> There's a great deal of disturbance in our lives, so I suppose for most of us it takes a good share of that hour or three-quarters of an hour to, to settle down and to settle into silence, as friends term it. You just feel touched by something that comes to you through the silence, which is sort of a spiritual feeling. Silence can be dead, we all know that. But I realized that there was a listening. And this, this I, I'm still trying to learn about. It's not something that came to me like a great illumination. Uh, but that there was a possibility of getting away from the noisiness, internal noisiness of one's daily life it's a quieting not only of my body, and that takes a little while, but much more of my mind and finally my spirit. Setting aside for now all the things that preoccupy me. There are many times in meeting I can't do that. I go through the whole meeting still deeply involved with the things that are exciting me or troubling me or whatever in my daily life and I've just not been a part of the silence in that sense. But then there are the other days when no matter how intense those preoccupations are, I can quietly put them to one side and enter into that silence which has an element of peace 
an element of communication, and more. It's beyond words. in Isaac Pennington is very precious to me in which he says there is that near you which will guide you oh wait for it and mind that you keep to it that puts the whole thing almost in a word for me and the mysticism that I know is is in that kind of a context of, of, of waiting for the guide of trying to follow the guide which I fail in so many times but which I know I'm called back to, I'm brought low again, and, and I'm made tender within uh, by what takes place there. So that I, for me, um, I'm not describing some ecstatic uh, experience uh, where I've been torn out of myself or where I've uh, been uh, in a state of coma or something of that kind. I'm really talking about uh, the accessibility of God uh, to, uh, to guide uh, in the life of a person who means to be in the world, to be torn by the temptations of the world, and to be taking responsible positions in the world, uh, that this kind of thing is, um, that it's possible to, to live close to this uh, if you have the help of a group such as I found in the Society of Friends. You can only really do it by introspection into yourself into your own values and how you function, how you're carried by the flow and how you move people in the flow. I don't think everybody, I, I don't think I've really found what, what it is exactly. I, don't think, I may not ever, but the first step I think is like sensing the flow. It's accepting that there is one, at least for me. I think I've done that, but I don't find it through a set of prayers or anything because that's not the way to go. It's like how your actions, what you do in this life, it's how you, you're going to approach God. If, if you act positively, then you're going to be working towards finding God. And from my point of view, love, is, love means many things between people, but it's a positive influence. People look at each other, they're tolerant of each other, they don't prejudge. And if I look at somebody, I can look at them objectively and I look at them optimistically and then you try to make the best of what you can out of every situation. And sometimes they sit back and I think of the whole world and I think there's got to be some unifying order to that. And I transfer that to a unified order in the universe that the planet's going around. So I just sense that there is something. It's not, it's not purposeless. The purpose may not be easily discerned, but I think it's there. I think it is this feeling that Beyond our intellectual capacity, beyond the reasoning capacity that we have, uh, while all of that is a part of it, and we ought to use our minds that have been given to us, and all the rational perceptions that we have, there is this sense that uh, there is something beyond us that is there behind the reason, behind the rational argument or decisions that we make that helps to clarify those decisions and that helps to give them a kind of a, a firmness when we make them, uh, a feeling that, that they are more than anything I am. We become vessels. We become lanterns. The image I love to use, of course, 
from the coast of Maine is the lighthouse. We become beacons of hope, radiant gatherers and givers of light. Reflections on the Quaker path, rich in American history and still vibrant today. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugertz. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. We're grateful to John Watts, director of the Quaker Speak Project at Friends Journal Magazine, which provided audio of Marcel Martin, Noah Merrill, Wes Daniels, Faith Kelly, and Monica Walters. Special thanks to Bill Pierce, Ursula Drobik, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, The Society of Friends, is Humankind Program number 243. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.